you know, as a mother, you are the mother of, I was the mother of Sam, of Rosie, of Ellie, that, you know, that's who I was. And suddenly it seemed on some level as I was not the mother of Sam anymore. But of course, I'm still the mother of Sam. I will always be his mother and he will always be my son. And actually he will always be a part of this family. And he is always with me. You know, there's not a single day that goes by when I don't think of him. And it's not that far off seven years now since he died. Hello and welcome. My name is Liz Gleeson and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who share their unique experience of grief. These stories are shared with the wish that you, the listener, may find some comfort, hope and solidarity, and maybe also the realisation that you're not alone in your grief. Each time you listen, please do support the podcast by donating on the website shapesofgrief.com or by becoming a patron on patreon.com. It's a privilege to hold these conversations and I extend my deepest gratitude to all my guests for showing up in this particular way. It truly is a gift. Welcome to the Shapes of Grief podcast. I'm joined today by psychotherapist and author Jill Mann. Jill is author of the book A Song Inside. Uh, It's a beautifully written book, a tribute to her son Sam, who died in 2014. Jill, you're very welcome. Thank you, Liz. It's lovely to be here. So I'm not really sure where to start, Jill. There's so much in this book. There's so many themes that you've covered. There's so much profound insights that you've shared. Um, Let's start with Sam. Tell us about him. Okay, Sam. Uh, Sam was a very lovable and very um, tricky uh, boy and young man, actually. Um, He was an absolute delight and he was also uh, my greatest challenge in life because he was just always a little bit different and pushed at the boundaries Uh, but he was very funny he was wacky Um, he just had a sort of take on life that meant life was never never dull when he was around Um, he's the middle of my three children so I have an older daughter and a younger daughter Uh, And Sam, I would say, was a fairly classic middle child, sort of struggled to find his place a little bit. Um, And when he was in his sort of late teens, he started to show signs of being unwell. And uh, what we lived through then for a sort of four year period, which was immensely confusing and yeah, really terribly sort of discombobulating because we didn't know what was happening to him. We didn't know whether he was just being a slightly more extreme uh, version of the sort of boundary pushing uh, young man that he'd always been or whether actually he he was perhaps becoming unwell. Uh, So that that was uh, as a family that was enormously challenging. Um, In also very difficult for Sam because he didn't feel that there was anything at all wrong with him. And so 
um, we lived through this two year period initially where where his behavior became stranger. Uh, you know, as I said, he'd always been wacky. He, he was always uh, someone who, who sort of thought outside the box. Um, but his behavior did become quite odd. He started to uh, live in a downstairs room, really stopped using his bedroom, ate in there, insisted on cooking his own food, became extremely um, sort of fussy about what he would eat, what he would put into his body. Uh, very sort of spiritual, which, uh, you know, so many of the things that happened to him actually are, you know, are sort of normal uh, to a certain extent, but it was the degree that Sam always, he took everything to that was the, the slightly sort of baffling thing. Um, and in time, he started to show signs of real, of psychosis. Yeah. I mean, Jill, just there, what you're saying, I found as I was reading this part of the book, the it's quite fascinating, actually, because I know so many people who fit the description of Sam and his way of thinking in terms of um, sort of the anarchist, if you like, fighting against the system, uh, being vegan uh, or vegetarian and then vegan and then raw food only, very controlling you know, around what's eaten, judgmental about others who maybe don't follow their way of being and thinking, mm -hmm. sleeping under the moon, um, gemstones, all these yeah. things that he was bringing into his life. And like you say, the spiritual quest. And I think certainly for me, sometimes I look at people similar to Sam and think, are they highly evolved spiritual beings or unwell? And sometimes it's a very fine line. But what you say is it's the degree to which Sam took it. I think. Um, it, yeah. And it's the difference between um, someone being able to keep themselves safe, still following these sort of, you know, whatever guidelines they give themselves, whatever beliefs they have. And I mean, everything that Sam sort of, did and you know sort of took into his life it was there on the internet you know he he was part of a community of fellow believers you know he he felt that we no one should drink um drinks that came out of plastic or food that came out of plastic and you know every so often i read something and i think oh my god sam he was right on that sam was right you know he really did know his stuff but it, it was the it was the ex, the extreme lengths he took it to, um, and really the sense that that the point came because he was a bright young man and really you know always stimulating company because he thought in in such a, a sort of slightly off the wall way but 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 you know he was a gr very good at, at putting his case for things and um, he he. He really did believe that he was okay, and it was it was heartbreaking in a way to have to tell him that we thought he wasn't. Um, and, and you could almost say, like, to whose rules are you okay or not okay? You know, we live in a very broken society, and I don't know. One of the great philosophers said, "It's no measure of health." 
to fit into the society we've created today. Well, the philosopher said it much more eloquently than I am, but you know, there's, there, there's truth in so much of what Sam thought and said, but it's just so incongruent with the society he was trying to live in. And this is why he returned again and again to travel and the islands and where he could meet, you know, fellow travelers of his path as such, right? Absolutely. I mean, really, his he, he took to going away on these trips to Thailand, to Hawaii, and he did. He, he met people who, who absolutely shared his, his beliefs and he saw it as a spiritual quest. So and he he also argued forcibly sort of against the, the sort of system that 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 I, you know, in my sort of rather unthinking way, just sort of followed going to university, studying, you know, getting a profession, all that sort of thing. He said, no, I want to I want to do things differently. I want to develop my mind. I um, I want to develop really the sort of spiritual aspects of myself. And he was able to do that because you mentioned in the book he had inherited some money. So he was able to take that and use that to to follow and do what he wanted to do. He was. He yeah. was. Yeah. And it brought him. I, I, I mean, for me, actually, because it, every time he went away, it was absolutely agonizing for us as a family because we really weren't sure that he could keep himself safe when when yeah. he was away. But on the other hand, uh, there was literally nothing we could do to stop him. I mean, we could have sort of burnt his passport, cut it up or hidden it. But actually, that would have just been a delaying, a delaying tactic. And ultimately, we felt the loss of trust that we that he, that he would feel towards us at that point would be more damaging, actually, than letting him go and trying to stay in touch with him and making sure as best we could that he was okay while he was yeah. away so it was absolutely agonizing to let him let him go and yet as he did become ill um and iller and in the end he 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 was uh he went into the sort of the the health system because we asked the the local community um health team to get involved and uh, particularly the early intervention in psychosis team who, who felt that he might be showing signs of schizophrenia. And ultimately that is the diagnosis he ended up with. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. He never accepted it. He never accepted that there was anything wrong with him. And that's partly because uh, one of the, the symptoms that quite a lot of people experience who, who suffer from uh, schizophrenia is uh, this thing called anosognosia where they actually lack the awareness something happens in their brain which stops them from actually realizing that their behavior is changing you know they lose the ability to actually look at themselves and 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 see what's happening that's something so, yeah um it, it, it was it was terribly hard but by letting him go off traveling and then letting him sort of come back when he'd had an, enough, which, you know, he did. And he always found his way home because he was a real sort of homing pigeon at heart. You know, home was sort of where he grounded himself. And 
I was so glad, you know, when the, the worst thing happened and actually we discovered that Sam had died on his, his fifth trip, his final trip. Um, it, I was so glad, I mean, that sounds bizarre, but I was glad that we had allowed him to keep that identity, to keep that identity alive where he could see himself as a traveller. And even though it went, you know, wrong in the worst possible imaginable way with, with him not coming home from one of these trips, I can't really find it still in my heart to, to regret the decisions that we made. And as I said, we couldn't actually stop him anyway. So really, all, all we could do was try to support him while he's and away. We all know, we all know that yeah. that worst possible outcome could have happened in your spare room or in the green room Absolutely. or in the local motorway. You, you talk in the book about the neighbour calling you to say she just wants to let you know she saw him in the middle of the intersection. When, uh, very scantily dressed so Sam was going to be in a precarious situation wherever in the world he was, he was. yeah he was. and I think it really comes across just the you know that expression stuck between a rock and a hard place profound loss can rock our inner world it's confusing life-altering and often scary you've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief but are there other models, theories, tools, or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. That you find yourself in because he comes across as such a strong character, Jill. He yeah. made up his mind and there was no unmaking it. And, and also getting care in the community was really hard for you. You kept on pulling in people to, to try and help you and help him. And Sam was never bad enough to be sectioned. He was never ill enough to be sectioned. Yeah. Um, Yet you and your daughters and Paddy and, and his dad knew that this was not your Sam and in the way you had known him before and something profound was happening to him. I, I think it really struck me that image you painted, Jill, of him sleeping in the green room rather than his bedroom with the shutters open and um, just the control around him and what he ate and what he thought and what he did and wouldn't do and urinating into bottles and his clothes getting dirty and his hair going into dreads. And, you know, we've all read those articles that say, if you don't wash your hair, it'll start to clean itself naturally. But it's almost like Sam had consumed every single possible article about every single possible thing and was trying to apply it all to himself. That's that's so true. It was. I mean, he 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 was such a, a a child and a young man of excess. You know, the thing with Sam was he never did anything by half. So, you know, he got into all these sort of tinctures and um, things like spirulina, which you know I'm sure are incredibly health giving. 
but he wouldn't then follow directions on how much to have. So he could literally consume an entire sort of bottle of tinctures in a day. And that was where somehow he'd lost. I mean, he never really had it, to be honest, because he always was this quite extreme uh, little chap and and teenager. But it, it definitely, you know, it got worse. And um, yeah, I mean, it was absolutely heartbreaking to have to. It was heartbreaking, actually, to feel sort of glad on some level, you know, some sense of relief when he was finally sectioned. Because it was, it was, and this is, this was selfish on my part, but, I, you know, at that point, I was desperate. I was desperate that somebody else was seeing what I was seeing, you know, in, in terms of the sort of medical community. And so there was real relief in feeling actually somebody else recognises that, that all is not well here. Yeah. And and feeling that it wasn't it wasn't just our responsibility as a family, because it's terribly hard in those early phases of um, certainly with Sam, the way it happened was sort of phases of psychosis that came and went. Yeah. And and, and he was happy. I mean, that was the other unusual thing about the sort of presentation of his illness is that he was he was on sort of cloud nine all the time and it he, he wasn't being um sort of persecuted by inner demons at all he was being entertained and and you know he 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 had never been happier so for him to be sectioned and you know in, effectively incarcerated against his will you know it was on a locked ward and it was utterly devastating yeah. So, and uh, back to the impossible, Jill, that you were faced with. Neither option was, neither option was palatable, if you like. Um, you used the word selfish there, but I'd, I would say human. You know, of course, you needed that relief to just have somebody else step in and support you in what you're going through. And it comes across, you know, I took some notes here. Um, you, you said somewhere, somehow as a mother, I should have known what to do, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like I felt an anger in me reading that at what society has painted as what a mother should be. Mm -hmm. We, you know, this, this is a little bugbearer of mine. Um, the, the image that we have of how a mother should be, this know-all mother, this loving you know limitless mother who can just give 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 and we are only human and when did suddenly the weight of the world and everybody's mental health and everybody's well-being suddenly go on to mother's shoulders and we know in therapy it's always mother issues <laughs> you know why is suddenly all of this our responsibility and I think when you wrote those words somehow as a mother should have known what to do I felt so angry with the world on your behalf that you thought this was all down to something you should do or not do yeah but I think as a mother we we do feel it and I I, I mean, of course, that is partly the external pressures. We are, we are sort of 
somehow fed this idea that we should have all the answers. But I suppose also there's an internal feeling in every mother, I think, that you, that, that somehow what you're born to is to keep your child safe. You know, that, that, that is all you want for them, really. When it really, when the, the chips are really down, what you want above all else is for them just to, to be safe. And it felt as though, yeah, as though I, I couldn't. I think, it. yeah. And you, you mentioned in it as well about your two daughters and the telling of Sam's death to them. And you write, I failed them both, you know, as they, they howled with each other. I think one was on the phone, one was beside you. And, you know, the same thing is there. Well, what about you? Who was showing up for you? You know, even when you told his dad, of his death you did that wrong too (laughs) and you know it's it's just a theme that I was picking up of gosh we're failing mothers you know we're expecting women to be the axis of everybody's world and we are just human you know your your humanity screams out on every page Jill thank you yeah yeah. You write about, you know, and it's the hours or days just after you learned about Sam's death, you said, nothing feels real, going through the motions of living life. Mm-hmm. Would you talk yeah. a little bit about that sensation that so many people describe? Yes, it, it was. It was just a bizarre feeling, really. I didn't really feeling feel as though I was was in my body. I know that sounds sort of a little bit mad, but I I didn't really seem to be entirely present with myself. And of course, you know, I I understand why, because being present with myself was simply too painful because it meant being really up against this terrible knowledge that Sam was dead. And because he had died abroad, and his body had not been found initially. I, you know, it it was very very difficult. It meant we never we never saw his body, and I think that was a very tough aspect of of my particular process. And everybody has their own tough aspects. I'm I'm you know I'm not trying to say that this made it worse, but for me, it was very hard not to have seen Sam dead actually you know to to have that yeah that reality of 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 a body that was sam that did not any longer contain his spirit yeah and you you put a lovely quote in the book um i don't remember who was by do you remember the quote of the man who said um the people who are lucky to be able to hold their loved ones bodies yes it was um oh yeah there we go nicholas walters Storff. that's it he wrote a book lament for a son and um i i I don't i i think this is really true of, of many uh, grieving parents is that actually there is so much solace to be found in reading of other people's experiences 
you know, grief is such a lonely process. It's lonely even within the context of a family, even when you're mourning the same person. Actually, everybody's loss is is different. And, and you all hit different sort of low points, uh, sort of less low points, really unbelievably low points uh, at different at different points, you know, in in your grieving process. And it's actually it means that each of you, you just feel like you are on your own sort of journey. And um, it's very I think that actually is a really painful aspect of grieving within the context of a family that even though you're you're all suffering the same loss of the same person it actually is a different experience for each of you yeah, and everybody grieves so differently as well and everybody grieves so differently but there is something about then reading another parent's account of of their experience that is incredibly um reassuring actually yeah and and some of the letters and responses I've got have received you know since the, the book was published since the song inside was published uh, have been you know actually the 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 things that I'm reading about that that you felt are things I feel too and it it's made me feel normal I'm so grateful I don't feel mad anymore yeah and it's 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 so true jill what you're saying about you know how you can have a family of four a family of six and they all feel so alone because one of the things that seems to happen when we have a shock like this or a loss like this is the self as we know it disintegrates you know the self as we know disintegrates so it's not like jill and paddy and ellie as they are taking this news it's like everything about you internally shifts places you know um dissolves falls away gets thrown in the air i mean there's a million different metaphors to describe it but so many people talk about just that complete disintegration of themselves and the grieving process then seems to be trying to find pieces to put back or grow new pieces you know where you need to it reminds me a little of childbirth yeah. you know when you're giving birth to a child it doesn't matter what music is playing how many supportive midwives are there how fabulous your partner or friend is at the end of the day it's you and your body and your muscles and whatever internal strength you can find to push out that child and nobody can do it for you. And I think that's part of the pain of grief is nobody can do it for you. Nobody can fix it or soothe it or take it from you. At best, we can ease it by being a kind present. At worst, we can exacerbate it or, or throw oil on the fire, but nobody can fix it no and we know that when you're that grieving person you and it's very painful when people try to fix it rather than bear it with you absolutely yeah I mean that's what any grieving person needs is just the feeling that other people understand you know that they and actually not just understand it is actually that capacity to bear that they can bear to 
hear about or even sometimes to feel your pain with you because and I think that's one of the things that does sort of assuage the loneliness a little bit is that that feeling of being held in mind by other people and and I discovered that you know was an enormously um enormously important part of of what I regard as the sort of the, the good grieving aspects of my grief hmm. that actually you know you were talking about people sort of disintegrating and I think it's I mean for me it wasn't so much disintegrating as just this sense that I uh, I would never be the same person again you know this this I would be a different me my life would be a different life our family life would be different you know everything about it just feels wrong to start with you know as a mother you are the mother of I was the mother of Sam of Rosie of Ellie that you know that's who I was and suddenly it seemed on some level as I was not the mother of Sam anymore but of course I'm still the mother of Sam. I will always be his mother and he will always be my son. And actually he will always be a part of this family. And he's always with me. You know, there's not a single day that goes by when I don't think of him. And it's not that far off seven years now since he died. But he's absolutely a presence in my life. But but for me, the grieving process is about learning to go through this sort of dual process of both letting go, letting go of, of the Sam that I did have in my life, which included this physical presence, but also holding on to holding on to him I mean he, he you know I do feel he is still he's a, a, a huge and active part of my life still and and continues to bring me bring me joy but you know those early years of grieving were in, you know were all about pain and I think sometimes we try to sort of take shortcuts in grieving you know we want to get to the, the bit where we feel all right and it doesn't work. You know, we have to go through the pain. We have to go through the, the difficult feelings, you know, not just sadness, because grief, it's not just about sadness. You know, it's about anger, about confusion. It's about envy, um, because there are so many other lives carrying on around us, people who still have their sons, you know, people people who are are a really important part of my life family and friends and you know I didn't want to shut myself off from those people because I knew that they were enormously important to me and actually they were also the people who would keep Sam alive for me because you know Sam had been part of their lives but actually I, I can see that it would be terribly easy to, to start to push people away because it's simply too painful to be confronted with other lives sort of carrying on and of course they do you know they do and you we all flew out to, to Thailand 
which is where Sam had been when he when he died. And we had this rather wonderful um, Buddhist ceremony in a Buddhist temple. And it was it was both wonderful and both absolutely hideous because it didn't have any of the sort of familiarity of, yeah. you know, the sort of service we would have had if we'd been here. You describe the boys carrying his coffin and their flip flops and dirty T-shirts and almost stumbling with it. And yeah. And yeah, you're standing yeah. there going, this is awful and wonderful. Yeah, it, it was. It, you know, it was everything. And in a way, you know, that is what life is, isn't it? It is both wonderful and awful. And it's I, kind of what Sam was also, what isn't Sam it? Was. Yeah. It is what Sam was. Yeah, because yeah. he was impossible. He was an impossible yeah. human being, but he was also an absolutely enchanting something you said earlier Jill about um well you say it in the book a couple of times I only knew Sam alive I didn't know him dead and you you mentioned this two or three times in the early part of the book and then you also talked about not seeing his body um this is a big deal isn't it for people who are grieving or for some people who are grieving the importance of seeing their loved ones remains would you say that it had any impact on your ability to accept the reality of the loss not seeing his body uh yes i think it did i think it did because um i mean i did both accept uh, accept it and didn't accept it so and i sort of knew that there was that sort of process going on inside me i I mean, when the the young policewoman who came to tell me that Sam had died uh, said that this that they they had found a body and that Sam's passport was with it. Now it so happened that Sam's passport had been stolen a few days earlier, and so of course I was convinced that it was somebody else's body with that passport. And, and you know, I understand why I needed. To why I needed to just hold on to that in that moment because it was you know a moment of absolute trauma of this this uh, young policewoman who I thought had come to talk to me about a burglary suddenly starting to talk about my son um, it's too much for the psyche to take in it is too much for the psyche to yeah. take in so I, I needed to sort of just build a little bit of a of a sort of um padding around me and and for that just for those few minutes while I was waiting to find out exactly which passport it was um that was enough for me to to sort of arm myself to some extent but but one of the things I really struggled with was I wanted to carry on sort of being a mother to Sam I couldn't bear the thought of disappointing him. This sounds quite irrational. I think it probably was quite irrational. But I had this thing about about wanting to go and be at the airport to meet the plane that he should have been coming back on because I had all those details in my diary. And, you know, that day inexorably ground round. And I wanted... He was due back in June, wasn't he? Due back in June and yeah. due back on the 22nd of June because he always chose 22s because um, he was born on the 22nd. 
And part of his illness as well was repetitive patterns and number sequences as well that he insisted on. Isn't that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. He did. So um, I, I just had this sense that I should, I should go and and sort of wait for him. You know, just in case there had been this terrible mistake. Mm. And I knew it was irrational because by then. I actually had the replacement passport that he had been issued with in Bangkok. So, I mean, I had it. I knew he he couldn't travel without a passport. And yet, you know, there was this this slightly mad feeling. And I think it was it was because I hadn't, I hadn't been able to see his body. I've yeah. never seen it. I hadn't seen a photo of him dead. You know, even that might have made a difference I and mean, it would have been deeply deeply painful too but there was something about that that not knowing that sort of yeah it was both I mean I'm sure it was a, a sort of defensive maneuver on my part you know an yeah. unconscious wish to hold on to this this hope to reject this terrible reality but I think it was also something to do with that sort of maternal role I mean, it sort of broke my heart to think of Sam arriving and and me not being there. And I knew he wasn't going to arrive. So I, I knew it was sort of bad. But I, I had this absolute tussle with myself uh, where I, I sort of, I made myself go through the process of, of, I allowed it as a possibility that I was going to go to the airport and meet him but actually as soon as I'd allowed it as a possibility I could then start to think about the reality of that what that would actually mean it would mean yeah. sitting there it would mean seeing happy reunions it would mean watching other mother's sons arrive and and give them a hug it would mean waiting you know how long would I have waited you know what basically by sort of allowing it to be a possibility and being quite conscious about my thinking about it I sort of got to the point where I was able to say to myself do you know what you don't need to do this you don't need mm. to go actually you can accept that Sam is not coming home it's the but it sounds like it was a really important process for you to go through I think, you know, William Warden talks about the four tasks of mourning and the first task is to accept the reality of the loss. Yeah. And I think to get there, we have to play these scenarios over in our head yeah. and for the outcome to not be what we want for us to, it's almost like we have to lose them a thousand times yeah. over and again, over and again. You know, we think they're going to walk through. Oh no, they're not. They're dead. Is that them? Oh no, it's not. They're they're dead. I must ring. Oh no, I can't. They're dead. And I think all of this is part of that slow, gradual acceptance. Yes, that they are gone. They're. I, I think it is, and I think because of my work, and I've worked, you know, as a psychotherapist with a lot of uh, grieving people too, and with mothers actually who had lost sons. Um, I, I know, I knew what can happen if you don't face the pain of loss. You know, if you if you can't really get to that point of 
acceptance. So I sort of, I made myself face it head on. And I think that's partly what my writing was about initially. It was actually, it was a way, it was a way of, of making it real. And it was also a way of, of talking to Sam, uh, which again sounds a little bit mad, but actually, as you know from the book, you know, part of the book is a sort of one-sided conversation with Sam. I'm sort of addressing him. And that, again, that was an enormously important part of, of my grieving because I was revisiting, you know, not, not just his death, but actually these difficult four years of his illness. And, um, you know, I, I needed to do that. I needed to make my peace with, with those, with, with what had happened to Sam. And, and you know, the, the Sam that we had ended up with once he was being helped with medication, uh, you know, who, who was absolutely delightful again and able to take care of himself. Um, so in a way, I had to sort of go through all those different stages of Sam in order to get back to the young man that I did wave off at the airport that day. And actually, that was the one time that that was the, his fifth set of travels where I actually felt he would stay safe. Mm. Uh, and of course, I mean, it's the, the one where he didn't make it home. Jill, reading the book, it was hard reading about Sam's illness. And it was hard reading or feeling your loneliness in it and your helplessness in it. Um, I don't know which was harder to read about, actually. His death in a cabin in Thailand alone or his life in your house and what that was like for all of you, for his sisters as well. Would you talk a little bit about the grief of that? Because, again, for so many people, we think about grief associated with bereavement and a death, but there's a lot of people living with chronic grief. And actually, as you were, as I was reading your book and reading about Sam at home and the different scenarios and situations you felt yourself in over and over again. And, and what amazed me was how you showed up for your son again and again and again and again. And I was reading that going, oh my God, I'm not sure I could be that mother. She is amazing. Um, you just, you're perpetual showing up for him, but the hardship was so clear. And I was thinking of this mom that I know whose son has a similar illness. And she would describe her life as living in hell a lot of the time, you know, not knowing what's around the corner. What's he going to do next? Will he be okay? When will she get that knock on the door? It's like living in, you know, we know that in chronic grief, when someone dies and we're in that or acute state of grief, the nervous system is shot. You know, it's like the volume is right up there and it's really hard to be in that state. But some people living with serious illness are in that state for years. And it sounds like you, that was a space you held for years alongside Sam. It, it was, and it was an intensely difficult space 
to be in. <sighs> it really was. Yeah. And actually, at, at the time that I was living through that, I started to write because I, you know, I have always written at, at difficult points or at high points of my life when I've travelled and things. I've always found um, putting words onto paper or onto a screen now enormously sort of I don't just really helpful. It's really part of how I how I sort of cope. Um, but when I started to write, when Sam was ill i i i couldn't i literally couldn't i i had this really sort of visceral response to it i sort of couldn't bear to because i couldn't bear to see it in black and white it was so painful so i it, it was i mean it was a time of enormous loss as you say you know um grief is it we feel grief when our best friend, when we're four, year, four years old, won't let us sort of sit down at the table with her because she's now cozied up to, you know, another friend instead of you. You know, that is a loss. And I think, you know, it's how we, we learn to manage loss all the way through our lives that is what either serves us well or not so well when big things happen in our lives because most of us face some sort of big loss at some point in our lives and I, and I suppose my my training because I, I had already trained as a therapist by the time Sam started to become ill that that was enormously helpful just that uh, the, the things that I had learned and my own therapy obviously is part of of that process of training that really helped me I think the the other thing that actually helped me during that time was that I I carried on working um, and I found that I was absolutely able to be present 100% present with my my clients my patients during that time whatever was going on in the rest of my life and that was actually enormously um sort of grounding for me and it was it was bizarrely a sort of a almost a joy to to not be having to face my own problems for hmm. those 50 minutes of a session i can relate to that it's like we it just comes out of us doesn't it we're able to show up despite yeah. what might be happening in our own homes yeah yeah absolutely and that yeah, and that sort of gave me hope in a way that I that I would be able to cope. But I think the hardest thing when you're living with someone who is unwell and with a, a, a an illness like schizophrenia that actually makes them unpredictable and their actions unpredictable is that you are living literally you're on a knife edge the whole time and I think that's what I do say in the book that in a way my I, I discovered that my moods were totally dependent at, at various points on on how Sam seemed yeah you know, if, he, if he seemed sort of cogent and engaged and um back to the the young man we all sort of 
knew and loved before he became ill, um, I would feel fantastic. And then if he showed signs of being unwell again, it, it was it was sort of unbearable. You know, I couldn't, I, did, I didn't want to see it. There was a part of me that so didn't want to see it. Well, it's like living with this constant threat over you. And although you knew that Sam wasn't going to hurt you, it is, it's our bodies respond as though it's a threat when someone we love isn't right. And they're being unpredictable and we don't know what's around the corner. We're living under threat. Yes, mm. we are. And it was, I just, it was such a, a, a terrible sort of feeling not to know, uh, you know, what, what the next day would hold, uh, you know, and which was sort of how it felt every day, really. So I think that the, my work was enormously mm. sort of grounding for me. And obviously the rest of family life, you know, the fact that I, I did have Ellie who was at home and, um, you know, studying for GCSEs and then A-levels. Um, you know, again, that was, I, and, and this is part of what you were referring to earlier, this, what we do as, as a mother is we try to make everything sort of okay for other people. So I suppose if I wasn't worrying about Sam, then I, I was worrying about either Ellie or Rosie, my older daughter, who was away by then. Um, and, but, but, you know, it does at least give you another focus because it's very hard living alongside um, I was going to say madness, which doesn't sound like a very kind word, but I don't mean it in an unkind way, but but that sort of unpredictability. Um, it is, it's enormously um, draining and it's just exhausting. I don't was it all consuming, Jill? Do you feel that it consumed your lives for those years? It was all consuming and yet life did carry on and I suppose in a way that that's also been my experience of grieving for Sam you know after his death so even though yes it is all consuming because it is it's such a massive thing that's happening in your life that there are times when it, it, it literally there is nothing else you can think about and it is overwhelming but at the same time, life does carry on. And that that sort of thing about, I don't know, just the fact that the sun comes up every morning, that the dark turns to light, that the seasons change. You know, in the early months of grieving, that felt like a real insult. I couldn't bear it. I didn't want time to keep moving forward. Mm. But actually, as time went on, there is something incredibly comforting in the fact that there is this bigger world yeah. out there which does keep on turning and gives you perspective and grounding yeah and mm. for me nature na nature and walking was such important uh sort of parts of my grieving mm. and kindness I kindness the kindness of others is uh, uh, amazing how 
healing that is. And I, I, I can't sort of say to anyone who is perhaps around someone who has lost someone recently, just knowing that someone is thinking of you is, it, you know, it goes some way to, it doesn't take the pain away, but it somehow it just softens it for a moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Jill, did you find after Sam died that you had conflicting emotions about it? You know, having lived with such difficulty for so many years. I mean, here's your son who you love and adore, yeah. who has died and it shouldn't have happened. No mother should face that. But yet also here's your son who caused such unease at home yeah. and such worry and threat. You know, in a in a way, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't welcome it for myself or the rest of the family because actually, we all loved Sam so much that actually, I I couldn't sort of welcome it for ourselves, but I I could welcome it for Sam mm. because what I felt was his life would have been difficult it would have become more difficult it it wasn't the life he wanted to live you know he he always had these grandiose ideas about himself you know he could hotwire a car when he was sort of six according to him and split the atom when he was 12 you know he was full of those sorts of things <laughs> yeah he was a he was a lovely he was wonderful but I could, you know, I knew that the life that that he was facing, which was a life where he was, it was within a system, a system of uh, sort of mental health provision, a system of of social care, you know, none of which he he either welcomed or actually felt he needed. That was going to be very tough, and I could see his contemporaries, his sisters you know they were all going to outstrip him in terms of what they did with their their lives and I knew his life would be reduced from what he had expected it to be he was going to stay very young wasn't he yeah and, yeah you know he he was doing something he loved um so yeah I I don't think that I could sort of feel relief on my own part but what I also became aware of was how much less anxious I was after he died yeah it was actually very painful to have to acknowledge in myself that actually my anxiety levels had dropped because in a way the worst had happened yeah I've heard that from other bereaved mothers, Jill, as well. When you're living with ongoing illness, whether it be physical or mental illness, the, the, it's like that threat, that level of anxiety, that not knowing, sustaining that for so long is excruciating. It's torture. It can be torturous. Yes. Um, and then when the child dies, it's like the grief is massive, but the layer of torture is gone. And there can be a relief in that. So it's just sadness or just grief or just appropriate anger. 
but it's that unknown factor which is just like a oh I, I don't even have the words for it I'm doing this with my hand just this ongoing torture not knowing hitting at you constantly keeping the volume up of your nervous system and keeping you activated constantly it's it's not sustainable it's not programmed to experience stress for a couple of minutes at a time and then to come back to a place of being settled yeah. and to live with that chronic stress for months or years is so difficult for any human it is it is really difficult so i think you know there is that there was that aspect of of relief and i suppose the other thing is you know I mean, none of us, I think, can imagine a worse loss than losing a child. You know, it is, it is every parent's sort of nightmare. It is a sort of, and I think to discover that actually one is still able to put one foot in front of the other, that, that you know, however sort of painful it is, however, um, overwhelmed at times one is but that feeling after a couple of years of actually well I am I am still here I am still here and actually I am surviving this and I am finding a way of of not moving on because uh, it's that's an absolute sort of abhorrent thought to I think anyone who loses someone, you don't want to move on from it because that implies leaving them behind. But but you want to move forward. You want to move forward. I, I mean, I to me, that is the, the sort of definition of healthy grief, really, is that ability to move forward. Moving and, forward with rather than moving on from. Absolutely. Yeah. Moving forward with, you know, with Sam, like I was saying, as yeah. as a a part of my life, a, a, a new different part of my life where is he for you today jill i don't know where he is actually but yeah i haven't really uh i well funnily enough he was right here on my um screen because i watched a little video of him that i have on my web my author website and um it's something uh that his dad put together and it's really lovely it's only three minutes long and um in preparation for this I just sat and watched it and sort of had him back with me for for a, a few minutes um yeah you still to, miss him oh absolutely mm. absolutely every, every day yeah every day what would you say to somebody who's experiencing a fresh loss and listening to this Jill I think I'd say try not to be scared of the pain you know try not to be frightened of it not to be frightened of that feeling of of overwhelming grief which will sort of hit you at certain times actually just sort of accept it and and go with it don't fight it don't fight it um i would say be kind to yourself you know do the things that normally help you for me that was walking 
it was writing. You know, draw on, on the things you know about yourself, which actually make life um, easier. And I, I would say, do reach out if, if you're struggling. You know, there are people who can help. There are uh, therapists, there are bereavement um, counsellors, specialists who really do understand and, and, and talking about it, processing it in some way is really, it's so important. You know, that is, that is the work of grieving, is allowing yourself to think about these things. Make space for it, for sure. Yeah, make space for it. And actually try to hold on to hope. I don't, I don't really know what I mean by that, other than, I suppose, you know, sort of hope that, that you will find a way through it. And I think actually that is one of the things uh, that came through in my book. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't set out to write a book. I actually just set out to keep a journal and ultimately I decided to turn it into a book. But, you know, what, what sort of happens during the course of the book is that this real sense of acceptance uh, sort of becomes a part of, of the whole and, it, you know, a lot of people who've, who've read it actually describe it as, as uplifting, which is which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, you know, you said it's a hard read. And of course, it is a hard read. You're, you're reading about um, a young man, you know, with a devastating illness and with a family really sort of struggling to cope. And there will be lots of other families with with children, different illnesses, but, you know, the same pressures, the same stresses and but, I didn't find it hard to read about Sam Jill I found it hard to read about you yeah because I resonated and I had such empathy for this mother trying to make her child okay yeah mm. yeah I know and I think and I think that that was also part of the process that happens in the book that you know I am able to be kinder to myself by the end of it you know, I've had letters, I got one the other day saying, uh, from someone saying, I wanted to scream out to you, you know, stop blaming yourself. But you know, these are, we have to go to these dark places. That is part of grieving. We, we can't avoid them. And I think, you know, I had to ask myself some really difficult questions, terribly painful questions, but that was part of the process of writing and of just sort of revisiting and I think by the end I have found my own answers and and I think that's where the sort of hopefulness in the book comes that there is a sense there is a sense that um that that even the death of a child is survivable so I suppose that's what I mean when I say hold on to hope. Because, I, you know, I know I've met, I already knew actually a number of bereaved parents. I, you know, when I when Sam died within two years, I, I had about six people who were, you know, were acquaintances 
who who went on to lose their children mm -hmm. and it is it you know it happens a lot more than one thinks and and actually so all these mothers i'm talking about mothers you know they are out there and they are living their lives and they are living valuable lives and actually it is it is possible it doesn't feel like it is when you experience the loss initially it you really i didn't know whether I would get through it. I didn't know. And in a way I had to allow myself not to know. But, and I think that is part of the, the sort of shift, you know, the mood, it does change in the book. And I think it it is, it is quite hopeful. It's a very, very valuable read. Um, like Esther Ramsey Jones, she has a lovely book as well, which I started reading at the beginning of the week. And your your book is one to be read from cover to cover. It's not one for speed reading. And it pulls you in, like it pulled me in. Um, so I wish you the very best with it, Jill. And thank you so much for talking today. Um, as always, think of the other people out there listening who are going through grief, who needed to hear something of what you've said today, particularly bereaved mothers, I think, or anybody living with an ongoing illness, whether it be mental or physical. Um, yeah, you've a, a lot to share, a wealth of wisdom to offer, Jill. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Take good care. You too. And with many of these podcasts, there's often a conversation afterwards that's just as rich as the podcast conversation itself. In this case, there was something small that Jill wanted to add in at the end. So here it is. Yeah, I, I think one of the things uh, that I've discovered uh, that, that other mothers are able to take from it, particularly mothers who are going through uh, living with a child with serious mental illness that actually it's given it gives them hope that feeling that actually even if the worst happens it is survivable and I got a really lovely letter from a, a, a mother with a son with schizophrenia and she just said thank you so much for writing this book it has it's made me think that perhaps if my son were to die as a family, we we could survive it, and I could survive it. Uh, you know, Jill, I think I was meant to hear that today because I actually, I take a screenshot of the cover of your book this morning, and I sent it to a mum that I know who is living with a, a child who has mental health difficulties, and it's a it's a very hard existence for her and for her other son. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to her and I said, you've got to get hold of this book. I think it would be great. But I forgot to send the cover of the book. And then as I kept reading the book and it was about his death, you know, Sam's death and yeah. Sam's body and Sam's funeral, I thought, what was I thinking yeah. sending this to her when her child is alive, you know? And I, I, I messaged her again. I said, you know what? 
I forgot to send you the book, but maybe no harm because, you know, maybe it's not right for you after all, you know, and, and, and I hope you're well. And I thought, God, that was really stupid of me. But now I think there's another message that that might be sent well, going, yeah, okay. maybe do read it, actually, because yeah. I know she lives in that fear of what's going to happen what's he going to do how will he die will he kill someone will you know she lives like that all the time and and just to say when I say that will he kill someone that's her fear something she has most people with schizophrenia are not at all um uh they don't cause harm they're not dangerous this is something we see in movies but it is not true for real life at all so um when i say that it's not to perpetuate a myth about mental illness or schizophrenia um it's just that's her specific fear with her son yes yes absolutely Mm. yeah thank you for adding that bit at the end uh you know nearly after every interview I do with someone I we say thanks and goodbye and good luck and then I stop recording and then all this gold <laughs> comes out all this wisdom all this magic and it's like you know damn <laughs> I know. yeah I, absolutely but we will pause there yeah thank you for listening to this episode of shapes of grief this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice And if your grief is making you unwell, please do see your healthcare provider. Once again, please consider supporting the podcast by donating on shapesofgrief.com or becoming a patron on patreon.com. I rely on your support to keep going. The music is performed by Baca Beyond, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from Miles Gleeson, take really good care. Come down to condemn